we're not building buildings just to look at them. We're not building buildings just to show how creative we can be. We're building buildings to solve a problem and to serve a need. And that need is generally for the people who are going to experience those buildings. And so the more that we can engage with and understand and, you know, really dig into what those needs are and make sure that the building serves it, the better you know, all of us moving forward need to be thinking about in all of our designs, what are the social impacts? What are the environmental impacts? And how do we get more and more of the good and less and less of the bad? Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Hey y'all, I know it's been a long wait for this final episode of the season, but as many of you know, I've been on sabbatical for the last few months. I actually wrote about that for Psychology Today column that I do there, and really about why I felt I needed to take time to just sort of step away from work for a little while and really care for myself and my family and my mental health. Even now, it feels like a little scary to say that because of how much I love my work. Also, how programmed our culture is to kind of falsely treat productivity as self-worth. And so um, that's definitely been something that I've been exploring more. I just feel like it's important to name it and to claim it. And I've received so many kind messages from you guys sharing your life experiences, your struggles with burnout and self-worth and how they've shaped you. I can't say enough how much I appreciate all of your support and kindness and honesty. It has just been so amazing and I feel so honored. So without further ado, I'm excited about this special best of podcast episode. We've stitched together all of our favorite parts and pieces from season two into one episode. And I have to give a very special shout out to Shared Space audio engineer Arnilla Noluk, who put a lot of sweat and tears into this. And I just really have loved working with her. And I hope that you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. We're going to start by understanding what is social health and Why is it important to combating loneliness and social isolation? Then we're going to talk specifically about what about the built environment or the physical spaces of our lives really helps to shape social connection and how do we do it better? We start with Dr. Mario Luis Small. Mario is a sociologist, endowed professor at Harvard and a Panama native studying social networks. He starts by defining a key component of our social health, something called social capital. And he talks about why it's so crucial for many of the social determinants we think of from transportation to education to habit formation. Really hope you guys enjoy this. The idea of bonding social capital is the kind of social capital that comes from communities in which people have a lot in common. Yeah. And so uh, it's often associated with a lot of trust, with a lot of sense of community, a lot of sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that being part of a community like that can sort of give you a good sense of well-being. Think about right now during COVID, a lot of yeah. us are isolated and so on. Having sort of people you can bond to, connect to in that way, that kind of social capital is valuable. Yeah. The idea of bridging social capital typically or often refers to connections to people who are very different from you. You know, they're bridged to sort of other communities. And what's useful about that idea is that, um, you know, the people who 
are most useful for certain kinds of things. They're not necessarily the people who are most similar to you. They can be the people who are most different from you. They're the ones who are most likely to know something you don't already know, to be connected to people you're not already connected to, to have access to resources you don't already have access to. There's overwhelming evidence that your connections matter to your well-being. And this is just about, there's, no matter how you approach the question, you're going to find some version of that answer. Yeah. For example, we do know that people who feel lonelier, um, that loneliness, a feeling of loneliness, yeah. the sense that you're not connected to those around you, the sense that you're not have a lot of friends and so on, that feeling is associated with both mental and physical health outcomes. Self-care is important. There are very many communities and individuals who have not prioritized self-care. Yeah. And in fact, uh, the absence of prioritizing self-care, uh, I just have to say this, um, yeah. there's now uh, good evidence that in heterosexual households with children has primarily mm -hmm. affected women because uh, they've earned, I mean, the, the productivity among women in that category has dramatically dropped and that of men has not dropped at the same rate. Yeah. Uh, and measured in a whole bunch of ways, uh, you know, probability of opting out, et cetera. And, you know, and so I, so, so anyway, so self-care, I think is important and it's important to bring it, bring, bring it to light in the context of just that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's very easy uh, to, to, to focus on the self part of the self-care part as opposed to the care part. You yeah. know, um, I, I think an outward orientation, which is very easy to think about when you're in the presence of others, mm -hmm. is easier to give up when you're just by yourself all the time. Next, we talk with UK author and environmental psychologist Nigel Osland. Nigel specializes in workplace design for human connection, and I was honored to be his first interview for his new book, Beyond the Workplace Zoo, Humanizing the Office. We normally associate loneliness with elderly people who've lost loved ones and they find themselves in a situation mm -hmm. where they're, they're on their own kind of thing. But when it comes to workplace loneliness, it's probably more to do with young people starting a new job in a new town, not knowing people around them, probably living in pretty cheap and nasty accommodation in a rough part of town, so they don't want to go out and socialise. But, but, but then they feel isolated, they feel trapped. Um, and and in, in my industry, the, the, the workplace industry, architecture, design, and that, it's quite common for, for people to, to come from all walks of life, or sorry, all, all, from all different yeah. countries and, and work... Um, on pretty low basic salaries to begin with in, in, a, in, a, in a practice. And obviously that means yeah. then that they, they can't afford to be in these great, lovely places and they haven't got their belongings around them or their family or so on. So so I think that is, um, again, something that came out, the, the research was that portion of the population that we, we kind of don't really think about because we tend to think of loneliness with, with, with elder, elderly people. People who work from home extensively certainly more likely to suffer from loneliness so we we got people to fill out some of the standard loneliness scales and then we looked at their primary workplace um, and we certainly found a correlation between people spending more time at home or more time out of the office um, uh, and, and loneliness now I, I, for me it's, it's definitely when you drill down it's more to do with people being alone at home than people say being mobile and working on client sites and traveling and, and all of that yeah. So that's what we found before before yeah. lockdown, and 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 at the other end of the scale, we also found high levels of loneliness for people who were in the office but in a private office 
on their own. Mm, and there's also okay. a thing about it's lonely at the top because what you find is senior senior leadership again they tend to have their own spaces, lot close the doors, or they're they're kind of in and out of meetings. They're not seeing their colleagues or their their team, so they can suffer from loneliness. But yeah, definitely the the homeworking, uh, excessive homeworking um, for particular people can lead to loneliness. Again, there's conflicting research because when you start looking at personality types and all of that, some people can cope better with loneliness mm-hmm. than others. Uh, sorry, some people can cope better with homeworking and therefore don't suffer mm-hmm. loneliness uh, because of uh, either personality or personal circumstances. So I, it's like all these things. It's it's a matter of balance. I mean, I think the first thing is to recognise that some people are more prone to this than others. So some people are mm-hmm. going to be seeking that interaction, socialising in the office, and, and, and it is it is socialising. It's not just interaction, collaboration. I need to work with my colleagues, teamwork. Uh, although yeah. the creativity thing is a big part of it, but it's just coming into the office to socialise and to catch up with people yeah. and to chat and that and that's a big part of work actually and it's through those interactions we build trust and then we go on and start to work with people. In late 2020 I had the honor of talking with author and New York Times writer Emily Anthes. Emily shares findings from her book The Great Outdoors, the surprising science of how buildings shape our behavior, health, and happiness. There is evidence that and here, especially like in an office environment, that despite things like Slack and, you know, all sorts of other electronic tools we now have, that face-to-face interactions really remain the gold standard. Um, workplace teams are more cohesive and they perform better when they have more face-to-face interactions. So that's absolutely true. But then the question is, like, does an open, is an open office really the best way to foster these interactions? And I think there's some reason to doubt that. Uh, I mean, I will say that the research here is a bit contradictory, Yeah. Um, but I talk about a pretty compelling study that was recently done on a major corporation that moved from closed offices to an open office explicitly to promote interaction and collaboration. Mm-hmm. And what they actually found was after that redesign, face-to-face communication plummeted in this office, mm-hmm. and it was replaced by digital communication. So, you know, both instant messages and emails. And there are a couple of reasons that might be, I mean, you can imagine if you're in this huge open space with everyone working quietly, like you don't want to be the one person like speaking out loud. You might worry that you're disturbing other people in the office. You might be worried you don't have privacy. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a private conversation without being overheard or bothering someone, you take that to instant message. Mm -hmm. Um, So, by taking away those things that we need, like personal space and privacy, you're actually driving people more online and away from face-to-face interaction. Like how appealing and friendly is a certain environment? You know, like there's some interesting research coming out at the neighborhood level of like, if you spruce up vacant lots and remove litter from streets, then that actually draws people out of their homes where not only do they get access to fresh air and nature, but they engage with their neighbors and this sense of community forms. And I don't think that's, you know, conscious decisions necessarily that people are making, but their behavior is being shaped by the quality of the built environment. There's been even less attention paid to autistic adults or people with PTSD or um, ADHD, epilepsy, migraines, all of those conditions and, and disabilities can affect 
how we process and behave in the built environment. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is it starts to become difficult if you think about like, well, there's so many different people and so many different sensitivities they might have. Like, how can we possibly design for wheelchairs and for autism and for ADHD? And that's just not possible. Good design for people with these conditions is often the same as just good design. And so you can think about someone with autism or someone with migraines or PTSD being essentially unable to tolerate some of the bad environments that we've created, whether that's too noisy or too distracting or glare or not good sight lines. So all of those things are things that I think all building occupants yeah. would be happy to see go away. And, <laughs> you know, the, the classic example, which I'm sure listeners, some listeners are familiar with, you know, is curb cuts, which yes. were created for people in wheelchairs, but it turns out it's made it easier if you have a bike or a scooter or a stroller or a grocery cart. Um, so thinking about ways in which special populations might be sensitive to bad design can actually guide us to creating environments that are better for everyone. Next, we talk with urban planner Mitchell Reardon of Happy Cities. He talks about what it means to truly create accessible spaces for everyone, where everyone feels welcome and is welcome as a part of the design process. The sense of community is something that comes through so frequently. I think we're seeing now just how important it is to have spaces to interact with people who aren't exactly the same as us so that we can get a, a very, like the start of an understanding with each other where, where that's possible. We need to design so that everybody can access the spaces, ensuring that if you're using a wheelchair or pushing a stroller or using a walker, that you're able to get into the space. There's also, you know, how that space is programmed and I'll say monitored or surveyed. The use of space is not equal among all people. So this isn't only a design question. And so understanding how we can make spaces that work for everybody to feel comfortable or that work better for groups who have typically not felt comfortable is going to be really, really critical. And that's focusing a lot on, you know, Black and Indigenous and people of color feeling comfortable in these spaces. I think at like a fundamental level, having the ability to share a space with people who don't look like you and who may not have the same beliefs of you as you is, is a super important thing in itself. We talk with design activist and author Katie Swenson of Mass Design Group. She had just published two books, Design with Love at Home in America, which is about her time with enterprise communities, designing affordable housing throughout the United States, and her memoir, In Bohemia, a memoir of love, loss, and kindness about her personal journey. She discusses how architecture needs to rethink and reevaluate the success of spaces and the importance of dignity in design as a fundamental need. In architecture, um, you know, we prioritize the sort of core safety of a building, the kind of the structural uh, physical safety. Although one could argue in the age of coronavirus that the safety of that building has not heretofore been made to include the quality of the air and the protection of safe breathing air for residents. So we've even in some ways fall, fall, fallen short of the physical safety of the building. But how can we... Um, 
how can we really understand who we are as architects if we're not necessarily creating the the aspiration and a sort of metric, I think, to evaluate the dignity of the spaces that we're creating as a core competency, really, of a building. The mechanisms of what makes life worth living, right? And it maybe it's Maslow's kind of hierarchy of needs. Um, but, you know, ultimately, of course, we need ideas of, of shelter, for example. Yeah. But, you know, we as importantly need ideas of identity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, issues around about how our built environment can contribute to our sense of, you know, certainly it has to contribute to our physical safety and um, our physical needs. But until it contributes to kind of the amplification of our, uh, whether it's our, our spiritual needs. Now, the book does not necessarily, it's, it's not it's sort of agnostic about, well, it's, I don't know if it's agnostic. It, it presents communities, some of whom are quite clear about the spiritual underpinnings, but they're all mm-hmm. a little bit different, right? They're coming from different mm-hmm. kind of faith traditions. And it doesn't have to be a faith tradition, but sort of the underpinnings of our aspirations, our aspirational selves, our sense yeah. of how we see the world. You see yeah. throughout the book these kind of core commitments to our interdependence and, you know, an understanding of the world, which means that we're, we're connected, that is sort of fundamentally to creating our sense of self, too, and our, and our place within it, which allows us in turn, of course, to be aspirational ourselves in our lives and yeah. what propels us as a culture. Yeah. Next, Shelby Blessing, architect and activist in Austin, Texas, shares her experiences working with the Community First Village in Austin, which is designed specifically for community building and connection for formerly homeless individuals. Really powerful example. Community First Village is a master plan community east of Austin that houses formerly chronically homeless individuals. And it was started by a nonprofit here in Austin called Mobile Loaves and Fishes, that has been working with the homeless population in Austin for over two decades. And they, for a long time, had really focused on taking food out to people on the streets. And they have these food trucks that drive around the city and they they still do this. They have a lot of volunteers who go out on truck runs and they take food and deliver it to people on the streets who are in need. And over the years, um, Alan Graham, who's the founder of Community First Village, I think he really saw that they were treating the symptoms of homelessness, but they weren't necessarily addressing the root causes or helping, you know, change the system. And so they really started, you know, they had built a lot of relationships with people in that process. And they started sort of on an individual level, working with a few of the homeless folks that they had met and helping them get into, I think at the time it was mostly in RV parks or trailer homes and trying to get them off the street and housed, just kind of ad hoc, one-on-one, working with individual people. Mm -hmm. And that was great, kind of on an individual level at the start. But the thing that they were seeing was when they did that, they were pulling someone out of the community that they had built on the street and the social support network that they had 
and putting them in a community where suddenly they didn't know anybody, they didn't have any relationships or resources, and a lot of times that didn't last. And so really their vision for Community First Village was to do that on a much bigger scale where they could actually build that community and that support network at the village. Design-wise, it started from that same concept too, where they said, okay, we're going to build an RV park on steroids, which was kind of the model that they had been working in. Um, But as they got a little further along, they realized that there was a real value to actually bringing in architects and designers and asking asking us to help them design homes that would feel special and feel permanent and and really create a special place and a home. They've really adapted their model over the years to focus a lot more on, you know, creating a permanent community, creating a space that's that's special and where where the residents who move in feel like they can stay there as long as they want and that it's not temporary or transitional. There's a lot of things that are kind of baked into the design of the homes and the design of the site that are really there to encourage connection and community. Um, Mm -hmm. So one is that the tiny houses were all required to have a front porch and, and really with that idea that, you know, part of what makes a great community or a great neighborhood is neighbors sitting out on their porches, talking to people as they walk by and sort of building that web of relationships in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, a really big priority was to create that space that could be more than just sitting out with a chair, but actually a space for hosting or for, you know, yes. a, a job or a hobby or other activities. And so it's more yeah. and more important as they grow to really really lean on the unit of the neighborhood to be the place where those relationships are formed first. Next, June Grant, Oakland-based activist and architect, shares her experiences working with AARP, the largest nonprofit dedicated to older adults, and how they created a guidebook for accessory dwelling units as a method for maintaining the community fabric and for fostering social connection in communities. So accessory dwelling units, also known as granny flats, also known as in-law units, detached unit, even sometimes a basement unit is considered a granny flat. Mm-hmm. But for anyone, accessory dwelling units is this independent living unit, smaller than a house, smaller than your typical house, with your full, you know, kitchen, bathroom, your own social spaces. It gives you complete independence, but in a smaller footprint. And why I'm attracted to in-law units and the role it plays as a solution to what's going on in cities, and it's a parallel story. Every year for the past 15 years, I've gone up to Ashland, Oregon, which is just on the, up, on the opposite side of the border of California. So Ashland, Oregon is a college town, mm-hmm. but Ashland, Oregon is this unique city layout that includes in-law units, granny flats as part of the urban plan. Mm -hmm. So you have the main house and you have these hundred year old, smaller independent units. Yeah. And to support these smaller independent units is an alleyway. So the Mm -hmm. city has this rather fine grain, um, street system that's your main arteries your main streets and then you have the alley streets they're not as smoothly paved they're more gravel but they provide access to the smaller units and the in-law units and what i loved about these in-law units and that gravel street was the community 
that was created mm -hmm. by the people who live in these smaller units. They had their own little engagement system that would get together and have parties. But also there were small businesses, jewelry designers and graphic mm -hmm. designers were using these spaces, some for living and some for business. And I yeah. found that to be truly exciting because it meant that retail was not just on the main street, retail was yeah. everywhere. Here, we talked to Mitchell Reardon again, who's sharing some fascinating research findings from Streets for the People, a study that they did in Canada at the beginning of the pandemic. Happy City's always been, you know, really curious about how the uh, built environment influences the way we interact with each other. And um, in addition to a ton of um, research that was conducted for the book and looking at a lot of the great academic uh, material that was already available, we love to do things out in the street. And so a few years ago, we were in Seattle conducting an experiment called The Lost Tourists. Mm -hmm. And in Capitol Hill neighborhoods, we took two streets with pretty different built environments. We're really curious to understand how having, you know, lots of small shops and cafes, what like urbanists might call an active edge, influences the way people feel compared to having like a long blank wall. Understanding, you know, who's in the community, you know, what kind of good work is already being done. Then doing the engagement pieces, those those are where we spend the most time. Happy City, we've developed um, this public life study methodology. And when we say public life, we're referring to basically, you know, how people are uh, acting and feeling in a shared space. And then, like, you know, in this case, for Streets for People, the pace at which they had sought to get the inter interventions out to support well-being meant that they were already in place by the time we were involved. And so for those, we try to use what we call control sites. So very similar uh, built environment nearby. So it's the same, like, neighborhood population that would be using it. Similar rates of traffic, pedestrians, all of those things. We try to make equal comparisons. And then we um, conduct observations. So we're looking at, like, you know, how are people moving through the site, like walking, cycling, rolling, other things? And what behaviors are they um, doing if they're lingering in these sites? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's like staying or, or moving, yeah. but then there's also like, are they laughing? Are they on their phone? A lot of the other pieces that can help to give us an indication whether this is supporting sociability, whether it gives a sense of comfort or trust. So we combine the observation component with these subjective well-being intercepts where we... Yeah asking people um, about, say, 10 questions and then a handful of demographic questions. Urban planner Andrew Howard of Team Better Block and WGBI talks about what is really important and not just the product, but the process of community design. How does a better block inspire permanent change in a place? And I realized that didn't come from me doing all the work and like me making sure that it looked great. Like That's cool, but I would rather have look a little less good, but someone local made it and, and owned yeah. it. After wonderful conversations with designers, researchers, and policymakers, we wanted to hear the perspective of everyday citizens that transformed a rundown empty space into a vibrant public community space. We hear from two community members from a local neighborhood association in Dallas, Cochrane Heights. That's Judy Sullivan and Meg Machetto about what it looked like to get that done and what it changed. The city had this uh, opportunity. Mm -hmm. My first idea was to, you know, do something with all of the alleys in the neighborhood and they talked me down. <laughs> you got to get everybody's permission and you've got to do this, that, and the other. And they suggested this small alley mm -hmm. that leads into Cochrane Park and 
I thought, what a great idea. First of all, we needed everyone's permission. So I connected with all those neighbors and mm -hmm. they volunteered to go get permissions from the people they knew. And little by little, we got connections made there. It was very difficult to get contractors to meet and give bids. And, and it, I was kind of unsure of the process. And But the city was fabulous about giving us... Um, information or ideas or connecting us with other neighborhoods and oh, that's awesome. uh, getting other people in the planning department of the city to come out and look and see what they thought and it was really a, a good process because that was another connection that we got connected with the city and we got to know mm -hmm. a lot of the people in the city and how they were really concerned in about the heat island effect of the city yeah that that this was one way that they were wanting to um, help mitigate that and with more planting and getting neighborhoods and community efforts involved. Uh, one of the meetings that we had with the city early on where we were all talking about the vision and how this, the uh, pathway could work and things. And as we were standing there meeting with the city, there was multiple people walking through there, even in the muck in the, you know, in the, in the mess. And, and so, you know, we saw people walking their dogs and then we saw people walking their children to the new, the solar elementary school that's right there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had, we had just voted on annexing this part of the neighborhood. Uh, and so I saw how, you know, people were using it and, and they would use it even more if it was beautiful and they would really appreciate it. And they do. Uh, the yeah. feedback has been phenomenal. So, you know, when we first had the idea, there was some people that questioned, well, why would you do it there? You know, it's on the edge of our neighborhood and, you know, not in the middle. Well, it was the ideal location, as, uh, as Judy said, because the, the um, didn't have a lot of the electrical power and, you know, um, oh, yeah, atmos yeah. lines and things like that. So it was a, a good place to start a project like this because it didn't have those um, challenges. Um, but it also really brought these other, the new part of our neighborhood we annexed and the people that live in the, the apartments uh, and they really are active in our, in our park now. Andrew Howard again. I think we just need to redefine what good is. Good is, good is what works for that community. We need to take that collective body of knowledge, understand people and you get to understand them by, which I've done going and eating samosas and figure out where they are and bring yeah. good design close to them and take them through. People yeah. started feeling the city more. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just logical. It wasn't just put the road here, put the city, you know. Yeah. It got it more of an emotional appeal to it. And then we realized that we're not just, we don't just make decisions on logic either. We, we've definitely been making a lot more emotional decisions in city building recently yeah. too, whether good or not, out of fear. And, and I think where we're headed right now with yeah. it is that we have finally realized that that vision, that American dream, that city on the hill, mm -hmm. it has a lot of different ways that it looks for people. Yeah. There's not a model of it. There's not a yeah. new urbanist, one perfect city on the hill. Yeah. Kind of, it's going to look different for everybody, but we know we can make every place a little better. Lastly, one of my favorite pieces in each episode was asking about their one takeaway. Sometimes this was directly linked to the conversation we'd had prior, and many other times it was something new and important that framed the conversation in a whole new way. 
I think the key, not just the community building, but I really would wish our architecture schools and our urban design schools and all our design schools spent a lot more time on observation and less on canon. Uh, that is that is actually the thing I desire the most. That was architect activist June Grant of Blink Lab. Both of these books are about, they're both about love and they're both about home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think those are two key critical concepts that I hope that people will take away the criticality and importance of home that, you know, provides the platform for all of us and that we need to then take that commitment through love into a kind of housing policy and an attitude that we bring into both architecture and design, but also into all of our kind of larger national, you know, core core policies. Mm -hmm. So I would say if there's, you know, one thing to sort of take away, it's an understanding that I think we're all aspiring to be able to bring kind of our most aware selves. We fall short. I fall short all the time. But that Mm -hmm. our job is, in a sense, to try to pay attention and try to live up to sort of being a ready partner um, with others and developing these quality of relationships that will create the kind of quality of the work. That was design activist and author Katie Swinson of Mass Design. Designers should consider multiple aspects of the community building for network formation process rather than just one. So at a minimal level, creating an opportunity for people to interact is better than not creating an opportunity for people to interact, right? So the lobby as opposed to no lobby makes a difference. Yeah. But then um, one can also design a space to increase the probability that that opportunity is capitalized on make a space to kind of configure and compose a space, is I guess what I would say. That was endowed sociology professor, Dr. Mario Small from Harvard. It's not about a flashy render or a cool project like object at the end. It's all the stuff that went into it that seems easy that probably wasn't. It's a really important time to be, be like understanding of each other and make the space to for people to, to you know really show what they mean when, when they say something. It's really easy to make assumptions. Now is a time where, where we need uh, a significant amount of empathy for each other. We need to have spaces that allow us to be empathetic as well. We need to uh, enable people to live with dignity, whatever their circumstances may be. And we need to just I think give people a little more time, a little, little more understanding than we might have recently. Yeah. Um, it, it's really it, the only way we're going to kind of knit society together um, is if we accept that there are differences and, and try and find the ways to, to bring them back together. That was urban planner Mitchell Reardon with Happy Cities. I think the biggest thing is, you know, being a really good listener, being a good good observer of the world around you and the ways that people are interacting. You know, every design is hopefully building on the body of knowledge that we already have as designers and hopefully allows us to get better and better at those things. But I think it's naive to think that any one building or any one designer is going to solve that and come up with the perfect answer to any question. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, I think it's all about communication and checking in on those things and really clearly articulating what the goals are and, and being able to um, talk to everybody involved to make sure that those goals are met. That was architect Shelby Blessing with Community First Village in Austin. Social connection, providing those social spaces and allowing people to socialise. That, that meeting with your colleagues and grabbing a quick coffee, and it shouldn't just be a quick coffee, it, 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 it could be a 20, 30 minute coffee, but, but, but over that time, you could well be talking about work anyway. You're certainly going to be getting to know each other and socialising. That's just going to build trust and help in, in your long-term work relationship. And, and don't think of it as, oh, they're, they're kind of not working. It, it's kind of part of work is that social interaction and getting to know people. So provide the space to do that. Good coffee is important. It's got to be comfortable. But I say more so than ever, it shouldn't be frowned upon. It, it shouldn't be seen that people are just taking time off work. They, they, they're taking time away from the screen. They're taking their time away from maybe some heavy, heavy computation. But what they're doing is they're re-energizing, they're refreshing, at the same time they're getting to know people. That was author and environmental psychologist Nigel Osland. The first thing that comes to mind is that permeability lesson. Um, and I think we could even broaden that out from... So we want to create, like, let's say, homes and office buildings that aren't just more permeable between indoors and outdoors and nature and non-nature, but if you're thinking about community and social interaction that really allow us to move seamlessly and encourage us to move seamlessly between private space and public space and community settings and personal settings. So really thinking about you know, it's not one design trick or tool, but like, how can we create, how can we break down some of the barriers in our built environment in in all sorts, however you define those barriers to create sort of more open, inclusive spaces. That was author Emily Anthes. Thank you all for an amazing feedback, your shares on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn And your emails this year. It has been such a gift hearing from you all, the talented Cornell Institute for Healthy Future students, to the passionate clinicians and artists across the U.S., thriving architects and designers in India, Australia, the U.K., Canada, and of course throughout the U.S., Tasha, Lindsay, Patricia, and so many others. I love you guys and gals. Just thank you so much for sharing your journey with me and all of your feedback. I also wanted to give a very special shout out to two amazing women who I was incredibly honored to join their podcast. So if while you wait for season three, you need a little more design for social health goodness, one is Dr. Risa Lewis. Risa is such a force of nature and has an amazing podcast called Visible Voices. This really lifts up the voices from across health, equity, and design. And Peg Fong with the Alone Together podcast. Peg is a journalist from The Economist and a professor. And the Alone Together podcast has an amazing episode really focused on loneliness, shared spaces, and looking at the history of how we came to design the way we do today and how we can design better for social connection. I was really honored to be interviewed for that along with an extensive conversation about this theme and the architect Le Corbusier. So you guys have got to listen to that. It's been such a gift getting to know Dr. Risa Lewis and Peg Fong. When you're done here, go over and check those out. 
You all probably heard me mention Arnilla Nolik in the intro. She has been helping me out all this season and has been such an amazing collaborator. Such a sharp, smart, talented filmmaker, writer, artist. I just encourage you guys to check her out. I have a link um, to her bio on our website and I'm just super happy to have her as a part of the team. And I just want to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. It's such an honor and privilege getting to spend this time together. I know there's a lot of places you could be and I really appreciate getting to share this passion with you guys. So until next season, take care. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.